Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack Dilo Boblik, and my lovely, luscious, legionnaire wife. Hi, this is Emmeline Dilo Boblik. Watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And what are we watching today? Today we were watching All Quiet on the Western Front. Yep, back to war movies after a brief uh, stop at Broadway. Yep. Should we start with the poster? Let's start with the poster. What do you think of this one? I think uh, this poster is just the main character's face staring off into the distance. I think he looks like an angry tomato. It doesn't look like the main character, though. It doesn't look like Paul. I'm pretty sure that's who it's supposed to be. I know, but it doesn't look like him. It looks more like Cat to me. No, no, no. no. Are you sure? Cat looks like uh, Jason Statham. Really? Yeah. Uh. Gri- he's a grizzled hunk of meat <laughs> who's always, you know, permanently scowling. You can tell that uh, this person on the poster is a baby face. Okay. We should be specific. It's not a picture. It is a drawing. It's a drawing. Yeah. It's a, all brown and red. Red. And orange. It's just a... Little green for the helmet. Yep. A young soldier looking on uh, all shaded in red. It's very, very grim. With, yeah, very stark. Not a whole lot to it. And the font on the bottom looks like old like paperback font mm-hmm. like maybe stephen king novel something from the 80s yeah uh, and we have the uh i looked at some pictures some articles uh, back at there from the time i was trying to look for um the cover of the book that it's based on and it just it looks very reminiscent of the the book cover so just single character in uniform Yep. Um, the young soldier. Yeah, the young soldier. Although the cover of the book seems to have more colors, like it has a lighter background rather than the poster is very, very dark. Yeah, this this one looks like he's sneaking up on you in the dark. Yeah. Do some dirty business. Yeah, he seems angry rather oh, than yes. the the soldier on the book cover looks more innocent. Especially with the the red tint to it. Yeah. He's angry. I have no strong feelings one way or the other for this poster. I feel like I would have... I understand why it's the main character on the poster, but I feel like I would have liked maybe just uh, all the young soldiers. Uh, I think it would have been maybe a, a more representative picture of the of the movie. Sure. Casting characters. Sure. There are a lot of characters, and throughout the movie, not all of them are called by their names. Oh yeah, there's a whole there's a whole lot of people, but there's really only two groups. Yeah, there's not they're not individualized very much. They all kind of operate as a unit. Right. So. So I just separated uh, four uh, characters and their actors because I think they're you know the main players in the in the movie or people that we recognize from the from uh, the movie so uh lou ares plays uh paul balmer who is the the main character the main, the main soldier lewis wolheim plays corporal uh kaczynski 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 uh he's nicknamed cat yep cat with a k yep 
Ben Alexander plays uh, Franz Kimmerich, and Arnold Lucy plays Professor Kentorik. Yeah, the one at the beginning. Yeah. Filling their heads full of propaganda. Yes. Those to me are like the the characters that are sort of like worth mentioning that are that play a, a role really, uh, or that are named really in the movie. Yeah, there are a bunch of uh, bright-eyed youths, but they're all kind of the same character, just with multiple bodies. Right. So, some information. Information about the movie. Tell me. Uh, it was directed by Lewis Milestone. Uh, it is based on the 1928 novel of the same title, which was written by Erich Maria Remark. Uh, the movie was released first released on April 21st, 1930. Only one release date? It had a couple release dates, but it seemed like this, it was released throughout the United States on that day. And then it had a bunch of premiere dates. Like there was a, a Los Angeles premiere and then a, a New York premiere. But it seemed like this uh, this is the first one of the movies that we've watched that was released throughout the country on the same day. Mm. Uh, the original running time was 152 minutes, but after it was restored by the Library of Congress in 2006, uh, there was a bunch of, uh, of cuts in it, and the, the final version, the one that we watched, was 133 minutes. I appreciate that. It didn't need to be. It didn't <laughs> need to, to be, be half longer. Hour longer. It got <laughs> yeah. its message across already. Yes, it had a budget of one point two million dollars, and it made a little over three million worldwide. Mm. Uh, some facts about the movie: the final scene, which we'll talk about. I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but Spoilers. the final scene uh, did not exist in the novel. Mm. It was based um, on a previous scene in the, in the movie when we were at the the main character's house. Oh, that's house. right. They do have those butterflies on the wall. I did yeah, not. Yeah, there's that... a there's a poster with butterflies on the. On I the did walls. not make that connection. And it's at all. like there's a. Um, I don't think that was a poster. I think that was a collection. I think. Yeah, there's a, a collection of butterflies in in his, uh, I guess, like childhood bedroom or something like that in his house, and so that's why there's a butterfly in the last scene. Um, the actress who was cast at first as the main character's mother, as Paul's mother, um, her name was, uh, Zasu Pitts. Zasu Pitts. <laughs> and, uh, she hell was mostly, name. hell of a name, yeah. She was mostly a comedic actress at the time. So when preview audiences saw her appear on screen, they immediately laughed because they recognized her from comedy. Oh, oh here so, come the goofs. So she had to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was eventually replaced by an actress called, uh, Beryl Mercer. No one's allowed to laugh at war. <laughs> no one's allowed. They have other comedy bits in the movie. So yeah. You're laughing at the wrong time. <laughs> to this day, uh, this film has a high score of 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it said in the description on Amazon, one of the most uh, well-known anti-war movies. Yeah, rather than you remember last time when I looked at the, the rating for... Uh, the Broadway uh, melody it was, was like a low 42%. Yeah. So, Which is higher than it deserved. <laughs> yes. Um, it was really well received in the United States, but not so much in Germany. I'm shocked. Uh, people pursued it as anti-German. 
uh, when it was released in Germany on December 4th, 1930, some uh, Nazi soldiers uh, disrupted the shows and yelled, Judenfilm, which translates as Jewish film. Despite the fact this is based off a book that was written by a German. Yes. Oh. Uh, those soldiers were apparently under the command of Joseph uh, Goebbels, who himself... In his personal diary wrote, and I quote, Within ten minutes, the cinema resembles a madhouse. The police are powerless. The embittered crowd takes out its anger on the Jews. The first breakthrough in the West. Jews out. Hitler is standing at the gates. The police sympathizes with us. The Jews are small and ugly. The box office outside is under siege. Window panes are broken. Thousands of people enjoy the spectacle. The screening is abandoned, as is the next one. We have won. The newspapers are full of our protest, but not even the Berliner uh, Tageblatt dares to call us names. The nation is on our side. In short, victory. End quote. They learned nothing. Yes. Nothing at all from the film. And... It, all, it was also, for some reason, prohibited for uh, certain periods of time in a few countries, such as Australia, Austria, Italy, and even France. Well, how do you get people to fight in wars if you're honest about how terrible they are? <laughs> I don't know. And it was the first uh, talkie war film to win Oscars. It won Outstanding Production, Best Director, and obviously Best Picture. Which is why we're here to talk about it today. Yep. Running into a lot of uh, progenitors so far in our journey. We had the progenitor of all uh, musicals last time, and now we have the the granddaddy of all anti-war movies. Anti-war and first uh, talky war movie. Yep. Yeah. The beginning of genres. Time for the plot. Let's go. This one is the longest synopsis I have done so far, coming in at five pages long of single space text. Buckle up, we are heading for war. Oh boy. Uh, just like Wings, we open with an explanation. War movies always have to prepare you before you have to go in. Gotta sit you down, give you a little talk before things get too bloody. I appreciated this one, though. I felt like it was... Um... I felt like, not that it was needed, but I felt like it, it was a, a nice opening of giving us not a video warning, but an explanation of how to take the, how we were supposed to look at the movie. Yep. And the explanation is this. This story is neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. I don't know what all this uh, escaping the shells is stuff (laughs) with all the things that happened in this movie, but... Yeah. We'll get to that when we get to it. Well, you know, not everybody... Most of our... Most... All of our characters die in the movie, but the... There are other people who escaped, right? Yeah, the monsters back home. Yeah. Alright, we then find ourselves in an unnamed German town, and war is in the air. Troops march through the streets, with people cheering and throwing flowers at them. The opening scenes of this movie are absolutely stuffed with people. 
Yeah. Like wall to wall, no free space, no streets. It's soldiers, it's flowers, everybody's cheering, having a good time. It seemed to me like they were playing a lot of the time that they were playing the same like sequence over and over again. Like it was looping. Yeah, that was kind of uh, looping a little bit. Like especially when the people are the soldiers are on those like chariots and they're coming through the town. There's a lot of very similar shots, yeah. if not the exact same shot. Yes. War's in the air, and it's all anyone wants to talk about. We have a brief scene of a cheerful mailman telling a shop owner that he's been drafted as a sergeant and will soon be off to join the fight. That he's going to change his uniform yep. the next day. He's very smiley and happy about it. <laughs> Loves war. Uh, the camera then follows the parade of marching troops as it walks down the street until it passes by the open windows of a classroom. And we head inside to hear what's being said. I thought it was going to be, yeah, the professor speaking out against it because at first you can't hear anything he's saying over mm -hmm. the, the sounds of all the, the marching and revelry outside. And he was, I thought he was going to, you know, close the windows and be angry about it, but not at all. Turns out what's being said is war propaganda. You are the lifeblood of the fatherland. You are the iron men of Germany, the teacher tells the boys that while... Uh, while he would never suggest that they do such a thing, he has heard that in other classes, uh, all the boys enlisted in mass, and if his class did so, that he'd feel nothing but pride. Your parents may object, but is such an experience really a bad thing for a boy? Is the honor of wearing a uniform something from which we should run? And all the while, while he's saying this stuff, it's panning over the, the faces of the boys in the crowd, and, you know, they're all... They're all kids, and they're all uh, drinking it all up, and uh, hook, line, and sinker, buying every everything he's telling them. Right? Yeah. Do you remember what happens when, we, uh, when it pans over the over the boys' faces? Like it stops every few characters, and it almost has like a a dream like. Uh, there's one where sequences where you can see you can uh, see what the characters what the those boys are thinking. About. Yeah, there's one who thinks about being in uniform and his mother seeing him and being appalled, but then his yeah. father walking in and being proud. Yeah. And you know they're they're being sold the lie. It's right. kind of yeah, and it, it resonates with what the teacher is, is talking about at the moment. Uh, so they're exactly there. Yeah, like you said, they're drinking it up and dreaming about it almost almost fantasizing about it yeah they're they're chomping at the bit and rearing to go they're being told that you know fame and, and glory and the adulation of uh, women awaits them and they will be heroes and you know all the the lies you're sold to, to get you to to jump into the wood chipper yeah here is a glorious beginning for your lives he tells them uh, the boys in the class are moved by the speech and all stand up one after the other, saying they'll go after Paul, who is seen as the leader of the boys, says he'll enlist. The The teacher even directly addresses him, Paul, I know you're the leader. What do you think? And then he quietly says, I'll enlist. And then they all start standing up, I'll go. I'm not going to stay home. Oh, you bet I'll get out there. Mm-hmm. There's one boy, one boy that is kind of scared and, and shaking. And yes. Like, Are and they you all, sure? They all gather around him. And, Come on, we all got to stick together. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the teacher smiles on as papers are thrown in the air in celebration, and they immediately leave to, to enlist straight from the classroom. Mm -hmm. No more class, they all shout. Hooray! <laughs> uh, 
next scene, all the boys are in the barracks of a training ground, putting on their uniforms for the first time, laughing, cheerful, and excited about the upcoming adventure. I'm going to be in the cavalry. I want to be infantry. I'm going to get a medal for sure. One of the boys, Muller, is bringing along a pair. I don't know if I got this right because all these kids look alike. Yes. They're all bright-eyed youths with short, blonde, or brown hair. And, and they almost never call each other by name. So no, we and, don't exactly know who's who. And they all have the same personality, so it's really hard to differentiate from. So one of the boys, maybe Muller, maybe someone else is uh, bringing along a pair of fancy boots his uncle gave him, which are surely the nicest in the entire army. The sergeant in charge of their group enters into the room, and it's the cheerful mailman that we met from the opening. Hemmelstoss is his name. Uh, the boys greet him in a cheerful and familiar way, because they just know him as the mailman from the town, mm-hmm. uh, which angers Hemmelstoss because war isn't a game and he's in charge, and oh brother, here we go. He's going to make man out of them. Yep. Uh, yeah. This is incredibly familiar to me from my time in the military. These uh, people who are very invested in playing the tough guy game. And mm-hmm. it's what they're supposed to do. And they're going to do it. God damn it. Right? Yeah. And that thing also, you know, pull, sort of pulling ranks. Yep. He's uh, he's a, a sergeant. That, that's uh, his, his place. He's uh, over these guys' heads. And he's, yeah, definitely. There's a change in character. Because when we first see him as the mailman, he's cheerful. He's different. He's approachable. He's a little goofy. And then you turn to this scene and he he's his, very stern and yep puts his uniform on and uh how do people know you have authority if you're not beating them over the head with it yeah <laughs> i've written here in the synopsis who's ready to be a destination on someone's power trip <laughs> yep very familiar to me uh, he orders them to stand in rows as he yells at them about how he'll do his best to make soldiers out of such a mess Cut to a training montage with the boys being led around a large parade ground, being made to crawl through the mud, practicing marching, and so on. Uh, they're inspected by two officers on horseback, who tell Himmelstoss that he's done good work and that the boys will be heading to the front tomorrow, so they recommend uh, they get leave until midnight. On the way back from the inspection, however, Himmelstoss orders the boys to crawl through the mud again, so they'll have to spend the remainder of the day cleaning their uniforms instead of getting the leave. Mm. Rightfully angered by this, Paul tells the others he has a plan for revenge. Next scene, we see Hemmelstoss drunkenly stumbling down a dirt road at night. Uh, the boys put a rope across the road so Hemmelstoss trips, and then they jump down uh, from out of the trees above him with a blanket, wrap him in the blanket, pull down his pants, and spank him with their sabers. <laughs> When they hear someone approaching, they pick up Himmelstoss, drop him in a mud puddle, and flee. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hence, this being, to me, like, maybe not the best scene in the movie, but at least the most, the only comedic scene in the movie. Yeah. It's certainly the only slapstick comedy. Most yeah. of the other is, like, gallows humor. Yeah. And, you know, soldiers saying grim things to deal with the the hell that they find themselves in. Right. This one, yeah. And it's one of the, certainly of the, the moment of catharsis in the movie when anyone gets what they deserve. Yeah. Hemmelstoss being I can see that. dumped in this mud puddle. 
Next, we're at an unspecified location at the front lines, a town full of troops and bombed out buildings under constant but sporadic shelling. Just the noise of shells falling out of the skies is a constant in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think more than five minutes goes by after they make it to the front lines where you don't hear the telltale, you know, boom noise. Just all throughout the movie yeah. and this is where it starts they're just you know everybody's milling about uh and you know just casually going about doing what they need to do while shit just you know every once in a while blows up around them yeah uh, the boys find the company they've been assigned to in the st second story of a house that's all the while while they're out there's never any sort of like official barracks or they're always just like in a farmhouse or you know, whatever building yeah. they can find. Before they even make it to uh, to uh, that house, we get our first death. It's not one of the boys, though. It's not one of the boys? Are I you sure? Th I, th no, I think it's just some random person they looked older yeah one of the just random but one of the one of the the boy who was uh who was scared of enlisting and all that yes. he's the one who's witnessing it because he's laying down next yeah, to the that corpse body is, corpse is like almost on top of him and, and paul has to come back and say come on get up we gotta yeah. keep going because he's yeah. in shock from having a corpse just land on him yeah don't they 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 call him babe right ben ben i think is his name uh, second story of a house, and the company seems to consist entirely of four grizzled veterans. One of which comments, here's another group fresh from the turnip patch. Uh, this guy, the actor that plays him was named something Slim, and he's uh, he's one of those guys that, he's only got to be in like his late to early 40s 40s as the face of a 70 year old man already mm. he's already getting jowls and like you know his face is drooping yeah which you know is fitting for the role here because he's supposed to be like he's a, a, a veteran like he's supposed to have seen some shit already yeah that's what i said uh earlier when we were doing the casting there's only there's a multitude of different actors but there's really only two groups in this movie and it's the new guys and the veterans and the interactions that happen between them because the yeah. new guys are all fresh face and naive and the veterans have been around the block and are completely burnt out and cynical about the war his name is slim somerville slim somerville and his character's name is jadden jadden tj yeah, yeah. <laughs> they say it i think maybe twice in the whole movie the boys haven't eaten all day, and Paul asks the veterans how they can get some food. Isn't there a canteen around here? He says, and they all laugh. Uh, he's informed that the boys' only hope for food is Kaczynski, who has an uncanny ability to find any food within 25 miles. Yeah, that's very, you know, that scene also to me is very innocent. Because yeah. they... It's the beginning of war for them. We're they hungry. Have no, Where's the food? They have no idea of what to expect, really. They're just thrown into the wolves. and Yeah, they're, yeah. they're still operating under the uh, assumption that things are going to be orderly and that they're going to be taken care of. Right. and that's Which is why the veterans laugh at them. And the first disillusion. Yep. Uh, we then cut to a man hiding under a cart that's being loaded with butchered pigs taken out of a train. And it's raining while this is happening, so he's just laying in the mud underneath the cart. Uh, he causes the cart to begin to roll away somehow. We don't really see it. 
and uh, steals one of the pigs from the train while the owner of the cart is distracted by the cart rolling away. He brings the pig back uh, to the house and tells the boys they can have some if they pay. Not with money, though. That's just paper. He wants cigars, soap, or alcohol. And he tells them, bring everything you have. Yeah, everything you have. I'll take all of it. That's probably the only way they get new supplies is from the new people coming in, right? Yeah, but also if they give him, just very practically, if they give him everything they have that first night, how are they going to pay him up for other food uh, uh, the next few days uh, or for the next few months? Like with many things in war, we cross that bridge when we come to it. Yep. While they're eating, they receive orders that they're on wiring detail tonight. With this bunch, says Cat, it'll be a quiet night. Teach them a couple things, says the sergeant giving the orders. They're taken in the back of a truck to their detail, and the driver tells them he'll pick up whoever's left in the morning. As they march away, we see the boys looking back at the truck as it pulls away into the evening mist. Camera at their backs as they march away from and not every single one of them, but the majority of them, you know, give it a quick quick glance, turn around and look at it as it pulls away. Mm-hmm. And for one thing, like, as you were saying it, like, they, uh, when you said, oh, he'll pick up whoever's left in the morning, I had not heard that. The, the quality, the sound quality is extremely bad in this movie, is even it... with the restoration from the Library of Congress. So, as I had not heard it, I <laughs> just heard, like, I'll pick you up in the morning. Oh, yeah, there's a ton of stuff that I didn't catch until I was going through this a second time for the synopsis because I turned closed captioning on. Because, like you said, yeah, the audio, just everything is so quiet. And we yeah. ha- even had the volume turned up as far as it would go, and we still couldn't catch a lot of stuff. And if you didn't catch it, and if you didn't catch it on the first listening as a native speaker of English, I have no chance of understanding it all. Yeah, everybody whispering in this movie for some reason. Yeah, Paul's mother is one of the worst offenders. I couldn't tell a, a damn thing she was saying until I went back through <laughs> with closed captioning. Uh, one of the veterans points out the boys are all falling behind due to their nerves. They're just walking slower, and Cat uh, turns around to reassure them that all they have to do is string a little wire and it'll all be easy. He tells them that they are going to see some shellfire, though, and no sooner have the words left his mouth than the telltale high-pitched screech fills the air, and all the boys fall to the ground in terror while Cat alone remains standing. There's a... Um, yeah, it's a, in that scene where he's telling them the difference between the different what, noises the different noises like if you hear this then you don't have to be afraid if you hear if you hear that then just you know get to the ground cuz mm-hmm. it's going to hit yeah and ultimately he tells them to just watch him and only duck when he ducks yes they get back up and cat says not to worry about it because it happens to everyone uh for now on they just need to watch him and duck when he ducks they begin laying down barbed wire with explosions and gunfire echoing in the distance uh, I think this was my favorite looking scene in the whole movie. Really? Yeah, because they're just on this little mound of uh, like scorched barren earth setting down the barbed wire and just blackness to mm-hmm. the horizon. Like you can't see anything and then a flare will go up and then you'll just see explosions way off in the distance. Yeah. It's very stark. It feels like they're just like alone on a mountaintop at the edge of the world. Which is, you know, I assume is what it must have felt like to be at war sometimes. Like, you just go in in the wilderness, you're completely 
in the dark physically and metaphorically too and that that's a, a really if that that's a really cool representation of what it must have felt like to be a young soldier at war yeah it feels like they're in the middle of the ocean yeah. even though they're on land yeah uh, the explosions get closer to their position and they run for cover but during their retreat one of the boys ben uh, the one who got caught underneath the corpse uh, and who was, he's the one who was afraid of enlisting. Yeah, who is uh, reluctant to go in the first place, uh, gets caught in an explosion and is blinded. Uh, in his panic, he runs out into the open and is shortly gunned down. Uh, Muller crawls out to retrieve the corpse and makes it back safely with the body, but is told by Cat never to risk his life for someone who's already dead again. Yeah, yeah that was, uh, I think, one of the... One of the first reality checks in the movie. Yeah, because he has a good, say, almost two minutes where he's just freaking out before he gets gunned down, yeah. screaming about how his eyes are gone and he can't see. And he, he's bloody. His face is bloody. His face hands is bloody. Are bloody. Yep. He's just running around. And, like, it's one of those things where as soon as it starts, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. And then you just have to sit there and watch it play out. The grim reality of war. It's a yeah, it's a reality check for both. I think the the audience, but also for the for the soldiers. Yeah, once they get the body back into the hole, uh, I think it's the one who pulls him back in. Muller just stares at the body and goes, "But he was my friend." Yeah. And now he's dead. Yeah. the The shine is already starting to come off. Yeah. The novelty is over. Who wants to go back home? Uh, the next day, the boys' company gets orders to march. Uh, to where, asks Paul. Uh, the next party, replies Cat. This is going to be a long one. Mm. Uh, we then fade out, and then we come back. The company is in a bunker. Uh, they've been under constant bombardment for five days, and everyone's nerves are at the breaking point. Uh, explosions go off every few seconds, and dirt constantly falls from the ceiling, and rats are getting into the food. Like explosions uh the whole set they're on shakes dust and dirt falling constantly everyone's just huddled up in corners it feels like the the structure that they're in is going to collapse on top of them at any second yeah Yeah. the veterans are playing cards trying to keep their mind off it but all the younger guys are clearly they're losing their mind yeah at their wits end seconds away from just snapping Grabbing their heads and just having stunned expressions on their faces. Yep. One of the boys is moaning about Ben and his sleep, which finally causes another boy to snap, and a chain reaction freakout begins. Uh, Everyone starts yelling and screaming. Uh, An explosion fills the entrance with dirt, and one of the boys tries to escape. Paul grabs him, and Cat punches him twice uh, to get him to stop freaking out. Uh, These are... (laughs) They shot uh, him punching the boy in the way they uh, shoot a lot of punching in movies where, you know, it's at an angle to where he can swing his fist and it looks like it connects, but but it's not really. And there's no... Usually that kind of shot is accompanied by a a sound effect to make it, you know, actually seem like he's being punched. But there are... They don't have that in the scene. No sound effect here. So it looks like he's faking and there's no sound to back it up. So... (laughs) It's really, there's just no impact at all to the punches. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's it, just for show. Yeah, it's goofy. Because, it, you know, it's like, oh, he clearly didn't connect, and then the guy goes, ugh, and collapses backwards. 
Paul asks uh, the boy who is freaking out if he's calmed down now. The boy says yes. And then the very next explosion, he starts screaming again and runs for the door. Uh, this time, he escapes successfully out into the trenches. Uh, he makes it about 50 feet before he's caught in an explosion and loaded onto a stretcher and taken away. Uh, Paul had followed him out trying to get him to come back to safety, and he's told by an officer that helped load him up onto the stretcher to tell the other people in his company that he's all right. I don't think... Oh, the, yeah, we do see him later. This we is, do see him this later. This is the one yes. they go to, to visit in the hospital yes. later. But also another running thing throughout this movie, like... The explosion happens next to him. Yes. And I guess it's supposed to be assumed that he gets caught by shrapnel. I think they, Paul tries to give him a drink of water and the officer says, no, don't do that. Uh, he got hit in the stomach with shrapnel. He got hit in the stomach, but somehow, that not that the boy that when they go to see him in the hospital, they took his, they cut off his leg? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at, is that there's a lot of times in this movie there's someone where, like, an explosion happens next to them, mm. and you don't really see any harm at all on their body, but right. then you're just told afterwards that they're really grievously wounded. Yes. Yeah, because even this one, they sort of, like, open his uh, his shirt and kind of, like, look touch and, around yeah, yeah touch around and look and there's no blood coming out or there's at least no blood shown on screen yep back in the bunker the panic is getting the best of the boys again and one starts to scream that they should go out and fight they should do something he's tired of waiting he can't take it anymore why aren't we fighting uh but before things can escalate uh cat returns with some food and they all begin to eat until they're interrupted by a stream of rats running through the bunker mm. Just camera cuts the ground, and you see a good, like, 30 of them just, yeah. just flooding over the floor. Uh, and we're treated to a solid 20 seconds of everyone wailing on rats with their hand shovels. Just It never actually shows them hitting the rats. It just shows them from, like, the waist up, just swinging their shovels down. And they go at it for a while. Yeah. Which, I don't want to suggest, you know, eating rats. But also, instead of being afraid that the rats are going to get to them or anything... If you can kill the rats, this is wartime, you, then you can have some food, right? Mm, too many diseases would be my guess Yeah. to do that. I guess, yeah, we're in the trenches. Yeah, you're in the trenches where there's just shit and piss and blood everywhere and they're crawling through it, so. Mwah. Not I, says the fly. Uh, once the slaughter is over, a whistle sounds, which is the signal for the men to grab the rifles and join an even bigger slaughter. It is, the uh, boy was freaking out and gets his wish. It's time to fight back. Uh, we then have the first big battle scene of the movie, with enemy troops charging forward through a ruined wasteland of craters, smoked, and barbed wire as they're mowed down by turret fire from the trenches. Long, wide shots of just, yeah, like, scorched, ruined earth. Uh, people running haphazardly. There's no sort of organization or ranks or anything. It's yeah. just go and everybody goes and then you see uh, a lot of shots from the perspective of the german trenches uh turret fire just the camera just like moving down the line as people just get mowed mm -hmm. down and this is uh constant shelling throughout the whole thing uh, this is the scene where uh an explosion happens to one of the enemy troops who's gotten uh, close to the barbed wire, and then once the smoke clears, it's just his two hands yes. hanging off the barbed wire, which is uh, the most gruesome thing we see in the whole movie. 
and uh, certainly the most gruesome thing we've seen in all the movies we've watched so far. Way worse than anything that ever happened in Wings. Yeah. See the meat. Uh, the enemy eventually makes it through the carnage to the trenches, and it becomes a brutal up-close melee with bayonets, knives, and even shovels being used to fight. Uh, I think this is... Uh, the purpose of that rat scene earlier was so it could contrast to this because it's very similar once they get up to the hand-to-hand fighting of people mm-hmm. just beating on each other and just yeah doing anything kind of taken by the madness yep just uh yeah killing another type of animal and just giving no thought to it just everyone uh going ham and uh just beating on things till they stop moving uh, the tide of the battle sways back and forth, with the Germans forced to move back, uh, but then pushing forward again with the help of artillery strikes. Uh, we end the scene with the company taking cover in a trench, bloody, broken, and bruised, passing around a bottle of wine that they opened by smashing against a rifle. And before they open the bottle of wine, they also have a loaf of bread that's gotten blood on the, the top portion of it, so they just cut off the portion that has uh, blood on it. And then open the bottle of wine by smashing it, and then they just drink out of the like broken glass mm. top of it. Ugh. I gotta do what you gotta do. This is wartime. Yeah, that uh, I'm sh- sure that brush with mortality really gets your appetite up. Yeah. Best wine they've ever had. Uh, next scene is the boys' company returning from the front and getting into an argument with uh, a, the cook of the camp they're at because the cook doesn't want to serve them until the whole company arrives. This scene goes on for a while. Like, this is a protracted argument <laughs> with these guys just being like, give us the food, and then Chef being like, no, I no. And there's never really any explanation as to why he wants well, to wait for everybody. First he says it's because the whole company hasn't shown up yet. And then uh, Kat replies and says, uh, there's only, this is everyone, there's only 80 of us left. Everyone yeah. else is dead because they're coming back from the front. And then the the cook says, well, I, I cooked for 150. I can't give extra food to people. I have my orders. He seems like another one of those people who's just being a dick because he has the authority to be a dick, right? It is, yeah. There is, yeah, some of that, but also... Very, he... very true to life in the military, I can attest. Very true to, being true a, to life. Being a veteran myself, you run into these people constantly who, who are just dicks for the sake of being dicks. On the other hand, he also is just a cook, not a fighter doesn't necessarily see what the reality is of what the reality of war is out there so he's been he's expecting 120 p 150 people it's, and he's not probably not prepared for the reality that they're not all gonna come back he, he's also being this uh precious over what is just a giant pot of beans mm. it's not even fancy food it's just these beans is all this man has sovereignty over, and he's just going to white-knuckle grip these beans until you pull them from his cold, dead hands. Yeah, but imagine he has his orders. If he gives more beans to, to the soldiers who are here and there's no more when the other comes back? So stupid. It's eventually resolved by an officer showing up and being like, what are you guys yelling about? The beans! Just give him the damn beans. What are you doing? So uh, the next scene is the boys' company... Uh, no, I already said that. Uh, they eventually get their beans with the help of an officer and go to pick out under a tree. They are just shoveling this stuff into their mouth as fast mm-hmm. as they can go. 
there's one guy who has a utensil that is a spoon on one side and a fork on the other. He spoons some beans into his mouth, immediately stabs a chunk of a meat with his fork <laughs> and shoves it in before he even starts chewing. Uh, no one can eat fast enough. Hey, you never know how much time you're going to have to eat him during war. Yep, get it while the getting's good. Uh, while they're eating, Paul wonders when they'll be going back to the front. Tomorrow, says Cat, and everyone groans. It's enough to spoil your appetite. Uh, Paul says they should go visit Kemrick before they go back, uh, the boy who ran out of the bunker and uh, was caught in the explosion. Uh, this triggers a discussion about how wars get started. Uh, they happen when one country offends another, says a boy, to which a veteran replies, You mean a mountain in Germany offends a field in France? That's stupid. No, replies the boy, I mean when a people uh, offend another people. The veteran replies, Oh, well, I shouldn't be here then. I'm not offended. I've never been offended. Somebody must have wanted it, right? It must be doing someone some good, right? The boy says, I think it's a kind of fever. No one wants it, and then here it is. It's a very, uh, again, very um, basic, innocent understanding of how wars work. Yes, with the, with the, also the legitimate question of why is this happening because they un they come to realization that nobody on either side wants to be doing this. Right. So then why are, is anyone doing this? And that they're fighting somebody else's war. Yeah. It's not the entire country's war. It's, like they say, it's like somebody must have wanted it. And so... they say, uh, well, the Kaiser must have wanted it. And then the reply is, well, the Kaiser already has everything he could ever need. <laughs> and the reply to that is, well, every good emperor needs a war so he can be famous. Right. Yeah, and they talk about how uh, uh, it couldn't be the British who wanted it because uh, they're German and they'd never even seen a British person until they came to this war, and mm -hmm. the British had probably never even seen a German person until they came to this war. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Kat chimes in and says, uh, any time that uh, the powers that be decide there's going to be a war, the way it should be resolved is by setting aside an open field, getting all the world leaders together, giving them clubs, and letting them beat on each other. Which, absolutely, I am all yeah, for it. Yeah, don't, don't involve people who have nothing to do with your decision making. Yeah, let, let the people that start the wars be the ones who actually fight them. I imagine we wouldn't have nearly as many wars. And also not many as nearly uh, innocent lives lost. Yep. Uh, with that settled, the boys go to visit Kemmerich. Uh, uh, he says that the people in the hospital stole his watch and complains that he has terrible pain in every single toe of his foot. But how can your foot uh, hurt if it's been cut off? asks one of the boys, at which point we learn that Kemmerich didn't know his foot was amputated. Yeah. Uh, Paul tries to cheer Kemmerich up, saying things like, uh, they make uh, wonderful prosthetic legs now, and you can still use your hands to play piano. And then you get to go home. You get to go home. Yep. Uh, but his efforts are ruined by one of the boys spying Kemrick's fancy pair of boots under the bed. You know, he was the boy at boot camp who had the fanciest boots. Mm -hmm. and still has them with him. And the boy asks if he can have the boots because Kemrick can't use them anymore. Yeah, that's a... It was... Comedic, but also Complete, just such a downer. Completely tactless, yeah. yeah. Well, old Gimpy over here doesn't need him. 
Paul tells everyone to leave while he keeps Kimrick company a while longer. He also denies the boy the boots, like, no, those are his boots, stop. Yeah. You're making it worse. Stop. Yeah. Go away. Kimrick complains to Paul that he's in pain, and Paul tries to get a doctor, uh, but they brush him off and tell him that there's nothing they can do. They ask him what boy he's talking about, and he says, oh, the one with an amputated leg. And we get another peek at the horrors of war because the doctor says, uh, which one? There's like 20 which, people yeah. with amputated. I amputated five legs today alone. Yeah. So that did, that is not enough to <laughs> differentiate anyone. Uh, we then see Paul... But then, you know, even though there's been... Um... He's done like five of those uh, amputations. Like, I don't wonder if, even if Paul had given him more details about Kimrick, like if no. if that made any difference. Like, oh, once you have an amputated leg, like, like you're you're done for. It's it's clear that at every level, no one really cares yeah. about them. They don't care when they're out in front. Uh, they obviously didn't care about them when they were back home or they wouldn't have sent them off in the first place. Right. They don't care about them once they're injured. The whole thing is just too chaotic and messy for anyone to genuinely take care of anyone else. Yeah. Uh, we then see Paul walking stiffly from the hospital holding the fancy pair of boots. As he walks away, he slowly picks up speed until he breaks into a run. The next scene sees Paul returning to his company and giving the fancy boots to Muller uh, and telling them what happened. I saw him die, he says. He says this in a really a really goofy delivery, though. When he was leaving the hospital, he almost had a smile on his face. Like, he, he felt, it felt like he was very energetic in, his, in the way he was walking. Like, he almost had some, I don't want to call it enthusiasm, but he... There was something motivating him. Yeah, he explains it here. I just That's what undercuts a lot of the, the drama for me in this movie, is the actor who plays Paul, his delivery is just weird on a lot of stuff, and so it mm -hmm. makes it goofy when it's supposed to be dramatic. Like this scene where he's talking about watching his friend die. Uh, yeah. The way he del delivers the line, he's like, I saw him die! And it's it it undercuts the, the tension and, and drama a little bit. Yeah. I saw him die, he says, and I came outside, and it felt so good to be alive. I began to walk fast and think of the strangest things, like being out in the fields and girls. And it felt like there was something electric running from the ground up through me, and I couldn't get enough air into me, and now I'm hungry. Uh, Muller is too distracted by his new boots to give a shit. <laughs> he, <laughs> he's just stomping around, wow, so comfortable. Uh, yeah, no one reacts to the speech that Paul gives. Yeah, he, no one, no one is listening. Yeah. Even though there, there's a, a bunch of people in the house, but yeah. no one's listening to what he has to say. The the cloud has been lifted from this young man's eyes, and he can feel all of life moving and breathing around him. And who gives a shit? <laughs> On to the next fight. You aren't paid to think, soldier. Uh. We then get a series of quick scenes showing the boots passing from one owner to the next as each gets killed or injured in turn. And this this is a, a, a neat uh, montage because the camera is always on the boots. Mm -hmm. it's, they're marching and it shows the boots and then there's an explosion and the, the person wearing the boots falls down, fade into the next, and it's, it's still the pair of boots but it's clearly on a different person. Yes. 
and it's just a pair of legs standing in a trench and then the pair of legs get up and hop over the the trench wall you hear gunfire and the person immediately falls back but the camera still just focuses on the boots while he's lying there dead in the trench good montage i like it the montage in and and all the boot all the people wearing the boots and dying are people from paul's class right they're this they're all is from the same group yeah it's just a montage of that that class being whittled away so they're starting to slowly die and, and just fade away one by one. Yep, dropping like flies. Uh, the montage ends and we're back in the bunker at the front lines and the men start to dream about what they'll do once the war is over. Uh, this is all kicked off by them coming back from uh, patrol and they found a cherry blossom branch. Mm-hmm. While they were out and they had a hard time pulling one of the veterans away from it to come back yeah. because back home he has a farm with those kinds of trees on it. And he yeah. just recently got a letter from his wife and uh, he knows how hard it is for her to be running the farm all by himself. So they start talking about that. Uh, all the boys agree that there's no point returning to school when uh, it's peaceful again since it never taught them anything useful. Like how to light a cigarette in the wind or how to get uh, damp wood to catch on fire is their examples. Mm -hmm. uh, and the majority of their class is dead now anyway. Uh, yeah, one of the, the boys says, well, think about it. There were 20 in our class, three are officers, nine are dead, and the rest are at the front lines or wounded. Like, there's nobody left already. Yeah, there's already, there's no hope that, uh, that some of them are going to come back. Nope that really any of them come back because he finishes that thought with uh we'll all be dead soon anyway yeah they they are resigned to their fate at this point and cat even cat brings out a picture of his family to show around and then realizes that he's gotten caught up in nostalgia and he gets angry at the person who started who first started talking about the past mm -hmm. you know why did you start bringing all this shit up like because the veterans more than anyone know that they're they're probably not ever making it back yeah that's such a sharp contrast between you know the the first scene in the classroom when they're all together and they're super like enthusiastic and and they're gonna go to war all together as a group and and then you get here and it's just, it's just falling apart the reality yeah has fully sunk in and they yeah. they know they're they're doomed yeah they're doomed and they're trapped and their only hope is to get injured just enough so that they survive but are allowed to go back home right. right that's the only hope they have that they only that they only get hurt a little bit <laughs> and they only lose a, a foot or a hand instead of a whole limb yeah or their whole life uh, one of the boys exits the bunker and sees that their old pal Himmelstoss has been sent to the front lines with them and he falls back into the bunker laughing uh, Himmelstoss enters the bunker and demands that everyone stand up uh, and salute and respect him and follow his orders, and he's laughed out of the bunker. He has learned nothing, nothing from when they captured him and tossed him into the mud. He's still trying to play his stupid rank game, and everyone laughs, and Cat just, like, points his thumb at him and looks at Paul and is like, who's this numbskull? Like, like who's your friend over here? And then Paul gets up and looks dead in his eye and he tells him that uh, we're assaulting a village tomorrow that we've already assaulted and lost a lot of people. So if we catch any bullets tomorrow, we'll be sure to come up to you, sir, and click our heels and ask if it's okay for us to die. <laughs> Just, yeah, I, this was a great scene. Just 
and something I wish I had gotten to experience in the military of some... Because the veterans I encountered in my time would... They would talk shit about people like this after they left. Right. And, you know, talk about how they were idiots and fools to be playing this sort of pulling rank game. But they would never do it to their face like this. Mm-hmm. So this was cathartic for me <laughs> to finally just see it be like... Would you shut up, you idiot? Yeah, to like, see somebody stand up to the to somebody who's pulling rank on them. To laugh at them like they should be laughed at. Yeah. Because right? they're... they deserve it. Because they're being idiot spoiled children. Yeah. And just trying to uh, play their stupid domination game. All right. He tells them that they'll ask permission for die, and Himmelstoss says, uh, You'll pay for this, and leaves. Because Himmelstoss has learned nothing. Uh, the assault on the nearby village begins, and, and Hemmelstoss joins the charge. He immediately gives up and starts to cower in a crater. After, like, the first explosion goes off, he just jumps into a hole and starts whimpering. Uh, and Paul jumps in with him and tries to drag him back to his feet while yelling at him that he's a coward. Mm-hmm. He, like, holds out his hand and points at one of his fingers and, I'm wounded! Because... He's, he's got his pinky. Yeah, his yeah pinky he, he's is got off. a tiny little scratch on one of his fingers, and yeah. yeah, of course, people like that are the first to collapse. Of course, uh, he does eventually get back up though, and uh, the charge continues. And I think that's the last time we ever see him. I believe so. After this charge, a good riddance. Paul charges forward too, and winds up taking cover in a hole from all the shelling that's going on. And uh, he lays down at the bottom, and it's deep enough to where all the enemy troops uh, passing over him uh, don't even notice that he's down there. So we get this cool shot of just the camera uh, pointed directly at the top of the hole and just people just jumping over the yes. top because everyone's so uh, concerned with charging forward that they're not even looking down. Yeah. Jump right over him without noticing until one does and jumps down to have a brief struggle with Paul that ends with... Uh, the enemy troop being stabbed. Uh, Paul. Then, he's a Frenchman. He's a Frenchman. I resent Paul for doing this. You can tell from you can tell from his name or his uniform. Uh, uniform, but also from the summary that I uh, that I read about the movie. He's uh, well, at that point they're in France because we had that I uh, when we were talking when we were watching the movie. I told you, oh, now we're in France because I saw a building that said Chaudronnerie, which is a, just a place where people make cauldrons. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that Specifically happens. Specifically cauldrons. Specifically. Nothing else. Well, Chaudronnerie can be a lot of things, but originally it was cauldrons. It's anything from, um, any, it, it could be anything metal, but... So specifically, it used to be for cauldrons and, and uh, bells. Yeah. Also. Good old-fashioned middle-age professions. <laughs> yes. And they do talk about the the ultimate goal being to push to Paris. So, yes. Yes, they are in France. Yeah, when we when they when they were leaving when they were in the classroom, they uh, remember I pointed that to you also. Like somebody writes on the on the board "Nach Paris," and it's like to Paris. Yeah, to Paris. Off we go. Uh, Paul then spends the rest of the battle in the hole with the corpse, uh, slowly being consumed by guilt, telling the dead man that they're friends now, and that he'll take care of his family for him, and he'll even write to his parents. Uh, Yeah, uh, he goes through a variety of different emotions while he's trapped, Mm -hmm. because the guy doesn't die immediately, so first he starts to take care of him and, like, bring him 
uh, sips of water and tell him that he'll be okay. And, mud water. Yeah, mud water. And, you know, uh, you know, we're friends now. And, you know, he'll make it back. Just yeah. got to hold on. And We understand each other. We understand. We're brothers. And, you know, the guy dies and he keeps talking to him and... Uh, he looks for his papers. He l- looks through his papers and finds his name, and that's how he sees the picture of his family and tells mm-hmm. him that uh, he'll write to his parents and wife. and That his wife will never uh, want for anything. Yeah. it It's probably one of the, the bleakest scenes in a movie full of bleak scenes because it's just the guy's corpse, and he just dies with his eyes open, like yeah. sitting up. So he's just... It's just a corpse staring off into space while, you know, uh, this young kid just freaks out and just has a mental breakdown because he has to spend, you know, the rest of the battle stuck in a hole with a corpse. Yeah, and God knows how many more there is going to be after him. Yep. Uh, He finally breaks down sobbing at the dead man's feet and begging for forgiveness. Uh, fade out and back in, and Paul is in bed, explaining to Cat what happened in the hole. Cat uh, tells him not to worry about it, killing is what they're there to do. And this is where he points to one of their uh, fellow soldiers, an example of like, uh, don't feel bad about uh, what you did, just look at this guy. And it, the camera cuts to a guy who's uh, taking shots and smiling and laughing, and uh, he hits somebody and goes, ooh, look at the way that guy jumped. Ha ha ha, you know. He's just completely lost his mind. And yeah, some people enjoy being at war. Well, I think it's... Yes, some people do, but for the majority, it's just a defense mechanism because yeah. you either have to... It's, it serves the same purpose as gallows humor as it's like a psychic shield where you have to turn it into a game because if you, if you look full of the face at the terror and horror and inhumanity of the things you're doing, it you have a mental breakdown, right? Well, that's their version of the mental breakdown. It yeah. just is covering it with some madness. Yes, some people start to scream, some people start to laugh. Yeah. But the the unintentional comedy there is a cat's like, you know, he points to him as like an example of how to be like, look, it's fine, look at that guy, he's having a good time. Mm-hmm. Which you'd think Cat would know better, but apparently not. Uh, On to the next unnamed small rural town, and the soldiers are given some time off to drink and relax. We never get told what location we're in, ever. Never. It's all just a series of small rural rural bombed-out villages that all look pretty similar. Uh, Everyone is at a bar singing and having a good time. There's a, a German drinking song, and this is the only time anyone ever really speaks German in the whole movie. Yeah. Even though we are following uh, German soldiers, they all inexplicably speak English. Yeah, which I was going to say earlier when I said, oh, when somebody writes uh, Nach Paris in the in the classroom, it's like, they speak English, but they're writing in, in German. Yeah. Uh, everyone in the bar is singing and having a good time, and Paul oogles a poster with a pretty lady on it. And he doesn't say anything explicit, but somehow manages to be an enormous creep. Because him and one of the other young guys comes and they just got their beers in their hands just looking at this poster. <laughs> and Paul says, look at how thin her shoes are. Yeah. Couldn't do much marching in those <laughs> shoes. And they're just, it's its so innocuous but so creepy at the same time because they're just drooling all over this poster. 
and then one of them just she, there's a man with her on the poster yeah and so they're gonna they tear uh tear it apart so that she's the only one on the poster well, right? his his buddy says uh you wouldn't have much of a chance with a guy like that around so, you're right so paul reaches out and yeah rips the half of the poster with the man standing on it so it's just the lady and then his friend's like well uh, how old do you think she is <laughs> and paul oh she's 22 and then the guy no that would make her older than us she's 17 she's 17 and paul you a girl like that sure would be nice yeah they're just the guy ne- yeah the guy next to her on the poster definitely has a, a very distinctive body shape like imagine Henry Cavill body shape, like broad shoulders, oh, yeah. thinner waist. They're both idealized, you yeah. know, uh, manly man and very feminine girly girl. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw it, but uh, the girl on that poster did get an acting credit. Really? So that may have been something they made explicitly for that movie, and so they knew who she was. I did not notice it. I did not uh, write down the name, but I did catch the fact that girl on poster had a credit. Okay. Uh, this motivates them to get cleaned up. He says something like, uh, oh, but I'd even de-louse myself for a girl like her. Uh, and him and some buddies go to bathe in the river next to the town. While in the river, uh, they hear some women singing on the opposite shore and try to get them to join them in the river. They, <laughs> they hear the singing and one of them just points and screams, WOMEN! <laughs> <laughs> and they all, uh immediately start hounding them uh their attempts are unsuccessful until one of the men shows the women some meat and bread he'd apparently been hiding in the water this whole time before that yeah one of the one of the girls says i'm not gonna come swim with you you can drown yeah they're speaking in french they're speaking in french yes and with no subtitles at all so it was up to you to translate for me what they were saying yes if yeah. you haven't guessed it by now, audience, I am originally from France, You're so this what? comes in handy. Yes, this came in handy for this Seems movie. Seems like the sort of thing you should have told me before we were married. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the girls are, they're like taunting them, they're like, we're not going to come swim with you, just, just drown already. Yep, you are just expected to know French. And thankfully one of us does. <laughs> uh, and he pulls this... Just like a loaf of bread and uh, a big chunk of meat just out from under the water. Why he brought these things to his bath and then dunked them. And also, when he pulls them out, they don't seem damp at all. I mean, they're soaked because they were underwater. But yeah, the bread especially, that would just be a, a soggy mush. Yeah. He bought, seems like he bought bread and like a, some kind of, of sausage, like a, a German Wurst. Hiding it, hiding it under the water this whole time. Uh, the women tell them to bring the food over, but it's against the rules to cross the river, uh, so they'll have to sneak over at night. They start to go over in the daytime, but some uh, fucking party pooper on a bridge sees them go, Hey, that's against the rules! So they swim back, and the, the women just tell them to, to come back uh, that night. Uh, they do indeed sneak over at night with the food. Uh, and after wolfing the food down, each of the men and women pair up and retreat to their separate rooms. They do trick the, uh, the guy who originally had the food was that veteran who I said has the face of a 70-year-old man. Yeah. Who's probably my favorite of the veterans. 
but they trick him to stay behind because there's only three women and there were four men. So they trick him into getting drunk with cats so he'll stay behind (laughs) and not screw up the numbers. So, Which, I mean, you know, he also got a good deal. He got to have a, a fun evening drinking beer and wine. Because we see him at the bar, he's stealing Cat's beers. And then um, we see him then with Cat, and he's like, you've been buying me drinks all night. And then he's, yeah, having a having a good time. Not as good of a time. Given that choice, I would take women over alcohol. <laughs> uh so that is the men first show up to the the house at night and they eat the food then it cuts to uh the veteran in the bar with cat mm-hmm. being distracted then it cuts back to the boys with the, the french ladies uh, they're all off in their own uh, rooms at this point and uh, paul laments that uh, they can't understand each other since he doesn't speak french and she doesn't speak either english or german yeah and uh tells her that even though he knows he'll never meet her again He'll always remember her. This was a, a sort of a disappointing uh, scene to me because we know they're in the bedroom. We can see, you know, the uh, shades. We can see uh, the the bed frame on on the wall, oh. but we just stare at the goddamn wall. Too tasteful for you. Yeah, I was like, they could be, you know, we can see them in bed. They could have just covered themselves, but. Like, what's the point of knowing them, that they're in the bedroom and then not seeing them? Like, I don't care about the goddamn wall. <laughs> it was... It was to give Paul a moment of privacy. It Aye. is... It, he... Uh, he has no privacy anytime in the war because he's always, you know, in a bunker or surrounded by 20 other people... He's never alone. He never gets to experience any kind of human intimacy. So in this one moment, he gets his refuge even from the eyes of the audience. I understand that. I understand the. Uh, I understand this for the the character. This but... this one moment exists for Paul and for no one else. That's very poetic. Yep, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I I like the scene and how they you just stare at the wall and you hear them. They they tell each other their names and like there's there's clearly a desire on both their parts to say more to each other but they can't because yeah. of the language barrier so there you feel their frustration and also but the the tenderness that still manages to to peek through it and yeah I would have just loved to see you know the expressions on their faces because it's so grim and Paul is at the center of it and he's experiencing so much darkness around him like it would have been nice to to see some uh lightness and joy on his face yep but we don't uh he tells her he'll always remember her and the soldiers head back across the river and on to the next town uh the next day paul and the veterans are marching in a column of soldiers uh joking about a pile of newly made coffins they just passed uh they turn to the uh, my favorite veteran and joke about how he's too tall and the, the coffins aren't long enough for him and uh, he's still mad at him because they left him behind to see the ladies and you know well you're a bunch of traitors so i'm not talking to you right now mm. and then shelling starts and paul is hit in the side by shrapnel it's another one of those where an explosion happens near him but he doesn't really seem that wounded but he like 
clutches his side, you know, ooh, oh, my side. Oof, ow, my bones, says Paul. <laughs> uh, Paul survives and winds up in a hospital staffed by nuns uh, with a bedmate named Joseph uh, Hamaker, who I thought was uh, Himmelstoss at front because he looks exactly like him. He's got the same uh, bald head and curly mustache. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was him, but, but it's not. Uh, Joseph Ham- Hamaker, who was hit in the head and has been having a grand time ever since, is what he says. Because he is periodically not responsible for his actions. <laughs> and he is also there with Albert, the last surviving member of his class. And uh, Joseph uh, uh, pleads with the boys to not die too quickly because everyone else that comes to the hospital uh, dies before he, he can even get to know them and make friends. Yeah. Hamaker uh, tells Paul that if you're moved to the corner of the building, uh, it means you're not expected to survive because that's the room right next to the morgue. They're just making it easier to put your body in there. Yeah, that anybody who's been moved so far has never come back. Yep, he's seen many people move there and no one has ever come back. Uh, During the night, Paul has a hemorrhage and is taken to the dreaded corner while screaming that he won't die and that he'll be back. This is another one of those moments that... uh, the drama is undercut by the over-the-top acting, yeah. I feel like, because he's... I'm, I'm not gonna die! I'm not gonna die! I'll be I, I'm not gonna die! Yeah. He's screaming and wearing and carry on. Also, when the nurses first come in to check on his hemorrhage, they go, well, well why didn't anybody call us? And they said, we've been ringing for you for <laughs> forever, and none of us in here can walk, so yeah. we just had to, to wait for you to finally come and check. They cart him away. Uh, the next day, Albert is talking to Hamaker, and he asks Hamaker if his leg has been amputated. Uh, Hamaker assures him that it hasn't. He looks fine. He uh, He's always had two legs, and he still has two. And he hands him a small hand mirror to prove it. Uh, Albert looks at him, had his face in the mirror for a few seconds, but then angles the mirror so that he can see his leg and finds out that Hamaker is lying and his leg has been amputated. I don't... Continuing the string of people not being told that their limbs have been amputated. I don't know what... I'm sure this was a real thing, but, like, why? Well, you can't be told, but also, like, there's, you know, there's this uh, symptom where... Even when one of your limbs has been amputa- amputated, uh, you can still feel it. Yeah, phantom limbs. Yeah, phantom limbs. So, we don't know if he's been told or not. Well, he is, because he's, he's asking Hammerker if it is, and then Hammerker lies to him and then gives him the mirror, and then he uses the mirror to reveal the lie. Yeah. He looks down at the rest of his body, which I don't know why he would just sit up and do that or, you know, reach down with his hands, but... He immediately starts freaking out and screaming how he's not going to live his life as a cripple and yeah. he'll he'll kill himself before it comes to that because yeah. uh, I, I have much more of a, a stigma against disabled people in those days. Yeah. Well, and also I don't and I don't know how it was in those days, but obviously way less a lesser quality of prosthetic and, yeah. and a lot more stigma around it than there is today. Yeah. He's just starting to, to shout and get himself really worked up uh, when Paul comes back. Uh, and Paul takes his place next to Albert again and tells them that they need to recover quickly so they can get the hell out of this place. I have a feeling that this is a much more lengthy and involved scene in the book. Mm-hmm. 
and that they kind of just bastardize it here for the movie in a kind of like, well, we can't just take it out entirely, but, you know, it's going to be a, a much lesser version of what it was. Right. Is what I'm guessing. I haven't read the book. Yeah. But it just has that feel of, of something where there's a lot more going on that we're not seeing because why introduce... Because we never see Hammerker again. No. So, like, why introduce this guy just for this little, like, not even ten minute section of the movie? Uh, Paul has accomplished his goal by the next scene because he's back in his hometown on leave. And nothing tells us this. It's just fade up into uh, town. I guess we should be able to guess because it's not bombed out like all the other <laughs> guess, yeah. places he's at. And it's just him yeah. walking down the street in his uniform and then he goes back to his house. Uh, he visits his mother, who is glad to see him, but also can sense how much the war has changed him. She tells him that you're a soldier now, aren't you? Somehow I don't seem to know you. He gets a, a, a very loving smooch from his sister. That's his sister? I guess. I thought it might be uh, the maid. Maid or sister, she, we're never really told who she, she is. She, but... Yeah, we're never told who she is, but she does get a few like orders from the mother that I don't think would be given to a daughter or if they were, would be asked more politely, she's more like commanded. But I could also see that being how a power structure works in a German family in the 1917s. Yeah, but before we, before she's even given one order, we see her smooch him when, uh, when he gets back. So I assume that she was his sister. Yes, your old nemesis uh, familiar smooching rears its ugly head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, three for three. This is the third movie. This is the third movie where we have people inappropriately kissing each other. When will the family make-out sessions end? Uh, she Soon, I hope. The, the girl does refer to uh, Paul's dad as father. Uh, who can say? Uh, that's also when he's back in the house where we get to see him go in the room and look at the, the the collection of butterflies. And she does make some reference to him, like, taking one away from her that she had caught. Mm -hmm. So kind of implies that they were children together. So yeah. leaning more towards sister at this point. Probably. My mother doesn't know him anymore. Uh, he then joins his father and his father's drinking buddies, who are a bunch of older men and drunk on the glory and honor of the war, who talk about what the young men must do if they want to come home, which is to push on to Paris. And they full on... One of the old men, like, oh, you want to know what you have to do to come back? Let me show you. And he just pulls out a map mm -hmm. and rolls it out and just starts uh, lecturing Paul about uh, the glory and honor and about how soldiers are so well taken care of and how they must push forward and, and all this crap where he just... It's so clear that none of them know what the hell they're talking about. They have this uh, deluded uh, view of the war and are just not going to hear anything otherwise because Paul tries to tell them, he says, you know, the war isn't actually like when you get into it. It's not actually the way it is, the way they talk about it back here home. And the older man scoffs at him and says, you don't know anything about it. Mm. And... I was hoping, because small, Paul is smoking in this scene, I was really hoping that he was just going to take that cigarette and just put it out on the map and, like, make, cause it to catch fire or something, because just... Fuck that guy. 
Yeah, there are a bunch of like old crusty men who probably have never seen war. Yeah, never had just... to participate and are telling someone who has been in it for over three years at this point that they don't know about the war that they've been actually fighting. Mm -hmm. The the level of delusion I'm sure is completely realistic but also just infuriating. Like, I, I so badly want Paul to just lose his temper and just fucking sock this guy in his <laughs> stupid ignorant mouth. Flip the table and there is stupid alcohol. Just tell them what monsters they are for, you know, sending the children into this wood chipper and then uh, having the gall to tell them how well treated they are and how what they need to do if they want the privilege of coming back home. I guess, you know, at that point, by that point, he's encountered enough people who were acting like this in the, you know, who were acting superior like this in the war. So yes. he knows that whatever he's going to say to them, they're not going to accept it. He's just, they're a bunch of old men and he's, he's a youngster. They they're have, not going to listen to him. Yeah, they have their delusions about what the war is and they are much more interested in maintaining those delusions than they are in the truth. Yeah. I wonder if that, that you know that scene was uh, reflected the the author's experience. Like if he had, because it's based on you know on the author's experience. I'm sure it must have. But... It, I'm I'm guessing it was one of his primary motivations for writing the the book in the first place. Just yeah. seeing the the level of uh, stubborn and willful ignorance about yeah. the the nature of war. Uh, Paul then returns to his old classroom to see the teacher that pushed him into this whole mess in the first place. The teacher brings Paul up in front of the class as an example of one of the iron youth that has made Germany invincible in the field, and asks Paul to give a rousing speech to inspire the next group of young heroes to jump into the wood chipper. Uh, Paul tries to decline, but the professor insists so Paul finally relents and tells the class that dying for the fatherland is dirty and painful, that millions are dying for no reason, and that he and his classmates used to think that the professor knew what he was talking about, but the first bombardment taught them better. It's a lot easier to sit back at home and preach about the glory of dying than it is to actually do it. And he's being called a coward. Yes, the, the the class is having none of this and calling him a coward. And how can you... They haven't gone, they haven't seen it, right? They are drunk on all the propaganda. Yeah. The same propaganda that Paul was drunk on that made him... That made him enlist. Made him enlist as well. Yeah, this scene is just Paul getting to see the cycle start again yeah. and just being completely powerless to stop it. The, yeah, the next batch for the wood chipper. Uh, the professor uh, is also having none of it. Uh, you can't focus on things like that, Paul. No, no, Paul, he says. Uh, but Paul cuts him off and tells him it was a mistake to come back and that he'll cut his leave short and go back to the front tomorrow. There, yeah, he can't, he cannot deal with the, the lie that everyone wants to live in back home. Better, better to hear the truth of the gunfire and cannon shells than, than the lies of all these people back home. 
Well, that's you know, I'm sure you have it in the at the end of the the summary. But when he goes back, he says like I don't almost like I don't fit there anymore. I don't I don't. Um, I don't belong there. I don't belong there. Yep. Uh, back at the front, Paul meets up with uh, one of the veterans who catches him up on all the people who have died while he was on leave. Uh, that one guy who got distracted by the cherry blossom branch mm -hmm. uh, just went AWOL in an attempt to get back home. And we're told that he was caught behind enemy lines, but I don't know if that means he was shot behind enemy lines or if he was captured. Uh, whatever the case is, he was never seen again. Yeah. And the veteran also tells him that the replacement troops they've been getting uh, for the company are so young, uh, they can barely even hold their rifles uh uh, Paul asks the age of one of them, and uh, the kid says he's sixteen, and they all, they all look like kids. Yeah. Like they're they're sending children off to die. Paul asks if Cat is still alive, uh, and when he's told that he is, uh, he goes to look for him, and they meet on a blasted patch of earth outside the camp. Uh, they sit down on a log, and Paul tells Cat that he's been in the war too long, and home doesn't feel like home anymore. You're all I've got left, Cat, he says. He talks about how even his parents have bought into the delusion and it's just an impenetrable wall. Like, nobody wants to hear it. Yeah. And he tells him how he was called a coward and how even his father wanted him to walk around the town in, in his uniform because they, everyone just has their head buried in the sand and their fingers in the ears and they don't want to hear it. Yeah. There's just nothing you can say and yeah they're fiercely proud of sending people to die yeah they they do it with a smile and a cheer uh yeah it, that's one of the lines when he's black in the the, the classroom too he uh talking to the professor and he talks about how you're you're still here spouting the same things making the next group of young heroes mm. and it's you know something you should be ashamed of but you're not. You're all I've got left. Uh, and as they walk back to camp, uh, a plane drops a bomb near them and Cat's leg is broken. This is another one of those explosions that happens next to a person and mm -hmm. then doesn't look like they really got hit by anything, but then we're told he broke his leg and is really badly hurt, even yeah. though like nothing really touched him from the explosion. Uh, so Paul carries him back to the camp, and the whole time he's carrying him back, he's like reminiscing about the good times they had, and oh, remember the first time we got shelled, and how scared I was, and yeah. how green I was, and oh, we sure have been through a lot, haven't we? That kind of thing. Uh, he arrives back at the camp and puts Cat on a bed and tells the doctor that Cat needs medical attention. Uh, the doctor goes to look at Cat and said that there's no point, Cat is already dead. Paul says that's impossible and goes over because he had just broken his leg, but then he, like, cradles his head and there's some blood, I yeah. guess? Yeah. He missed some a wound on his neck or something. Uh, Paul is completely shattered by this and uh, stumbles away from the tent in a daze because, like he said, Cat was all he had left. Uh, the next scene sees Paul back in the trenches on the front line, sitting near a small window in the barricade on sentry duty. He's just bundled up in a corner next to his gun, poking out, watching for, you know, any enemy troops to advance. Uh, he sees a tiny butterfly resting on the ground right past the barricade and slowly reaches out to touch it. An enemy sniper spots his movements, and uh, the final scene of the movie is Paul's hand 
moving slowly towards the butterfly, a shot rings out and Paul's hand sinks motionless to the ground. Which actually isn't the final scene because we get one more after that. It right. goes back, it shows it shows a graveyard full mm -hmm. of just plain white crosses, like almost to the horizon, and then it plays over like ghosted over that image of the graveyard is the scene of the boys walking away from the truck when they're yes. first dropped off to, yeah, to drop the barbed yeah. wire. And it's the scene of them all like, you know, looking back at the truck as it pulls away. Yeah. Because they're all they're going to die. Yeah, that was the moment that their fate was sealed. Yeah. Yeah, that was their their first mission. Which it's another contrast, I guess, is um you know, we get that scene at the beginning in the classroom when uh the camera, you know, um pans throughout the, the classroom and then uh stops on some of them and we see them fantasizing about the uh, about uh, the war, about being soldiers, and then we early on in their experience as soldiers, we get that that scene where they're all looking back at the um, at the truck with very different expressions on their faces, like you're leaving us in the wild. God knows what's gonna happen to us. Yep, they're they're watching their last hope uh, get farther and farther away. Yep, the the fantasy of war and then the reality of it, and the the people who live in the fantasy don't want to hear anything about the reality. <laughs> is the uh, the main thesis of this movie. Yeah. <sighs> what did you think of All Quiet on the Western Front? It was better than I expected. Better uh, a better war movie than than I expected, but uh, not. It's a different kind of war movie. It's a different kind of war movie. It definitely, yes. It does only in its very opening moments does it uh, put any stock in the the wars and adventure, and it's always an attitude held by children in that movie. So yeah. it it's showing you what a naive view of war that is. It was much um, much darker. Yes. Than I thought it would be. It's a, a much more grim and rough depiction of war than than wings was yeah you got a little bit of it at the end of wings with the tragedy and you know but they just shrug it off yeah, war and you know it's bad but what are you gonna do and here it's but there's a lot more people you know with like morale and and wings and, yes and here it just it goes down very quickly there is a lot more suffering in this movie and a lot more extended suffering Lots of, like, those scenes in the hospitals go on with the, the writhing and the pain and the, oh, you know, the loss of limbs and the, the fear and the panic that they all mm -hmm. feel and the hopelessness and being trapped and just the complete apathy of everyone with any sort of authority around mm -hmm. them. I think it did a, a really great job at those, yeah, those sharp contrasts scenes, like, when you see their... In like sheer innocence at the beginning like when they were like oh what's for dinner you yeah know, we haven't eaten all day <laughs> where's the grub where's yeah. the canteen and then and the veterans just like oh these these poor fools <laughs> they have no idea <laughs> yeah yeah i like the dynamic uh, between the veterans and and the boys because you know the veterans uh, would laugh at them but they weren't overly hostile towards yeah. them there was a lot of camaraderie and, you know, 
showing them the ropes. I especially like, uh, enjoyed the the character of uh, Kaczynski, Katz. Yes, because... Katz was great. He's the one who looks like Jason Statham, just he... shorter and a little more stout. His man, he just looks like a, a slab of beef. Yeah, he feels like a he feels like a dad. You yeah, know, he's he very he's very protective and uh, he takes care of everyone and yeah. he's gruff but he's got a heart of gold, right? Yeah. He's always the one out uh, uh, finding food and when people get uh, like shell shocked, he tells them not to worry about it and mm -hmm. he consoles people and yeah. even the the camaraderie with the with the veterans, uh, especially you know when they play that prank on on the guy and, and leave him behind while they go and see the the French ladies and that that feels like something that you would pull on like. Your uncles or yeah. your okay. your elders. Get get the old man drunk so we can go sneak away and see the ladies. Yeah. yeah. It does have a very yeah, old young people pulling a prank on an old person feel to it. And he gets so drunk in that scene that he, he tr the one who was tricked tries to punch cats, but mm -hmm. he's so drunk that he just misses twice and then falls <laughs> on the table and cats just picks the table up and rolls him off of it. Yeah. Yeah. The veterans are just he I mean he got it right because he was a soldier himself in the war. It, it's very authentic to their uh, their specific style of gallows humor and the resigned nature to their fate. Like I saw plenty of that in my time in the military too. Of they had uh, this ethos of uh, embrace the suck is yeah. what of what they called it. No use complaining. Just you know keep trudging along and do your best to to survive whatever shitty thing you're handed. Yeah. I really enjoyed what you said earlier about, you know, that scene in the house when I was, you know, goofy and, oh, we don't see them in bed and all that. But it's true that, it's true in the movie, but it's true in reality, too. Like, soldiers don't, especially at war, they don't get much privacy or time alone or time to be, they, they don't, don't get time to be human. Yeah, they don't get, they don't get anything human. That's why so many of them break so quickly. Mm -hmm. Because you're forced. I haven't thought about that that aspect before. Yeah, you're forced into the the most extreme conditions, and not only that, but no one will acknowledge how extreme they are. Yeah. And in a, in a sense, like Paul is, he's always there when other people are dying. He's yeah. the one who has the most inhuman experience in in the movie because we see him definitely like being affected by all those deaths yeah. and he's yeah he's the last one standing and then falls himself there's a good bit of foreshadowing in the very beginning uh in the classroom bit because uh the professor mentions that paul is a writer and has already mm -hmm. written the first act of a tragedy first act of tragedy yeah which i was as i was telling you like it, it's fitting that he's the last one standing too because He's the writer, so even if, even though it's not presented as a story being seen through him, like it's it's fitting that he would be the last one standing because the, he's sort of the one writing their story, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's grittier and it f doesn't shy away from all the horrors of war. I just, I wish it had been more direct in its uh, accusations, I guess. Because mm -hmm. when Paul goes back home, you can just feel him, like, seething the entire time. 
mm-hmm. having to listen to these people who just don't know anything and you're trying to to glorify and smile about the hell he's just been through right well it, it comes back to that warning or that message at the beginning of the movie like when it says oh this is not an accusation yeah, or anything i i fully understand that but i want it to be an accusation yes, yes. i i wanted the movie to end in the classroom with paul staring directly into the camera and just talking about how all these people are just monsters it would have it would have been a more satisfying ending for sure like especially because you know from that uh sequence that montage where when you see all the different soldiers like wearing the boots and you're like okay they're falling one by one who's going to be the last one standing yep it would have definitely been to me a better yeah a better ending to see him come back and actually get to tell the truth to and to people who would want to listen to him at that point yeah he he starts to lose his temper with the professor, but he reins it back in before it fully gets unleashed. And I just, I wanted that moment of catharsis. Just, like, just fucking give it to him. Just. It's almost no point because. Uh, oh, I know. I know it wouldn't change anyone's mind. It's it's fully just for the catharsis of getting to yell at these people who deserve to be yelled at. Yeah, I know. At that point, he's in front of a classroom, a full classroom, who's already, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, and and they've already accepted the, the professor's words, and they're probably all going to enlist the next day. Yeah, there should just be, there should have just been more shame. Yeah. Uh, more shame heaped upon the people who are serving the Kool-Aid. Because yeah. you can forgive the young men for uh, being dazzled by the lies of their elders, right? But mm. that same... Uh, mercy does not extend to the elders themselves who should know better mm-hmm. than to be throwing children into a wood chipper. Especially, you know, for the professor. I'm sure he hasn't seen many of, of his students come no, back. But it's uh, a glorious to die for the fatherland, except if you actually have to go and do it. It's a much more bleak and realistic take on war than wings is but that being said i feel like i'm going to remember wings a lot longer than i remember this movie i before i rewatched it for the synopsis like i could already feel just pieces just it evaporating out of my brain well for various reasons also you know not just the story but also the way it's filmed the way it what you can hear, the quality there's, of it, it's... There's a lot of repetition to it. Yeah. Like, they do multiple freakouts over amputations. They do multiple big battles of uh, just constant, you know, shelling and explosions and, and people running through turret fire. And uh, it may make me sound cold and callous and maybe my soul is a barren wasteland where nothing ever grows, but... You know, if you've seen one freak out over an amputation, you've kind of seen them all. So, (laughs) anything more than one is just kind of... There's no sense of novelty after that. Yeah. Which is bleak in its own right, but gotta be honest, like, I'm watching this guy scream about his leg, and I'm like, I've already seen this happen. Yeah. Show me some new horror movie. (laughs) Yeah. How many more war movies do you think we're going to get? Oh, it's never going to end. <laughs> it's uh. never going to end. Uh, our next one is a Western, at least. Yes. 
but uh, it wallows in it. And, like, it has the right to wallow in it, mm-hmm. and maybe even it should wallow in it to fully get across just how horrible war is. But end of the day, if we are ranking these uh, for their entertainment value and how much we enjoyed them, uh, I enjoyed Wings more. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, so far, I would say on my list it goes Wings, All Quiet on the Western Front, and Broadway Melody. Yep, if we are... Uh, officially ranking them now, Wings maintains its position as number one. All Quiet on the Western Front is number two. And where we diverge is that uh, Broadway Melody is number 90 for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because it never deserves to be anything higher than that. (sighs) So next week, next time? The the true fight actually began on this one. We actually had to have a discussion comparing movies instead of... (laughs) Uh, Broadway Melody stepping out onto stage and immediately shitting its pants. (laughs) The war of the war movies. But even though uh, this is a better war movie, Wings is just a better movie. (laughs) Yeah. Wings was a a better movie. It was a a better... A better everything to... uh, There was more... um, Unique characters and wings. More unique characters. I feel like the there were more. Uh, the cinematographic prowess was better too. Yeah, they had air battles, which are more impressive. There were more uh, characters numerically in this movie, but person, but like I said, they all just functioned as groups instead of unique individual personalities. Yeah, there was more character development in in wings. Right? Yeah. At least the you get you only get like two really two main characters that you care about throughout the movie, so it's it feels more personal. Yep. Oh, and uh, one fun fact is the the hand in the ending scene mm-hmm. that drops low to the ground is not the hand of the actor that played Paul. Yeah. You saw that piece of trivia? Yes. Because when they filmed that scene, uh, filming had already ceased, they were in editing when they filmed that, mm-hmm. and so all the actors had gone home, so they had to use a different person's hand for that yeah. scene, which I wonder how that happened, because they shot the actor crawling over the barricade, so they obviously always intended for that scene to be in the movie, yeah. and for him to get shot, so... I believe it might have been the director's hand. I believe that that's what it was. I guess they knew that they, maybe they knew that they could, they didn't need the actor for that, so they just saved it for later, because it seems odd to film the rest of that scene without the knowledge that you're going to have the hand there at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Wikipedia informs us that the scene was shot during the editing phase, so the actors were no longer available, and Milestone had to use his own hand. His own hand, yeah. If you look closely... Uh, the wrist is a little hairier <laughs> than Paul should be at his age. Yep. Our longest episode yet, for our longest synopsis yet, for I, the longest movie we watched yet. I be- mm? Are you sure? This was two was hours it? and two hours and fourteen minutes. I don't think, I don't think Wings was longer than that. No, this was two hours and fourteen minutes. Okay. Yep. Definitely. 
Definitely. Okay. Uh, well, until next time. Yeah. What's the name of our next movie? It, either Cimarron or Chimeron. Any, Chim- in any case. Chimeron, maybe. It, it's a Western. It's a Western. So, guns yes, war no. <laughs> Looking forward to the break. Yeah. See you next time. See you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. And thanks for listening. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.